Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. I'm your big host, Scott Weatherly, and as always, I'm joined from that me- le- mean green mother from our space, <laughs> Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? You okay? Feed me. <laughs> I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Yeah, I was. Uh, I've been. I've been sort of not feeding the plants. I've been following the rules. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to be doing a musical special. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this one. This is. Uh, Does that a, mean we get to sing? I will be. I'm pretty sure at some point I will be breaking into a sort of a Steve Martin song at least, which is one of my favourites in this film. Oh, yeah. Um, we are talking about 1980... I'm going to check now. 1986, 87, musical <coughs> Little Shop of Horrors. More than that, I'm going to check something. Director's cut or theatrical cut? Which did you watch? I watched the director's cut for the mm-hmm. first time through. Uh, and I have to thank you on air because uh, I grew up with this movie. Uh, I watched it as a kid. I had the soundtrack as well as other um, Mencken stuff uh, on, you know, pretty heavy play when I was a teenager. And I never knew about the alternate ending. And it was talking with you that informed me of the alternate ending, went back and rediscovered my love for this film. So this was the first time I watched the director's cut with the alternate ending fully integrated. Yes. So that's what I've got. I've got the, the Blu-ray stuff here to reference. Um, it's a very different film for the director's cut. Uh, and so, listeners, just so you know, spoilers. Obviously, we always get into these films. But uh, <laughs> many, many people will remember this very differently to some of the discussions we're going to be having. Um, and... Yeah, just just this is into perspective. So we are talking about Little Shop of Horrors. In the in the um, when this was made, Frank Oz, uh, he put together an ending, and we will discuss the ending soon enough. However, the studios did a test screening, and people thought it was too much of a downer ending. They didn't really like it. They were very sort of uh, it didn't give them what they wanted. Uh, it gives me what I want. I tell you that much. But I think what they wanted, so they had to go back and reshoot an ending for this film and the ending you get in the theatrical version is a lot um quicker it mm-hmm. resolves very very quickly is the ending i knew for years and also the song don't feed the plants isn't used until the credits um that's mm-hmm. used in the director's cut uh, but it also ends on a much much happier note all round um however to me it has a slightly different moral I mean, has a very different moral implications for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And especially for the character uh, played by Rick Moranis, um, Seymour Crowell. And so watching the director's cut, I, I, I was going to ask this, really. did did watching the director's cut then, with the integrated ending, the, the, the original ending, 
did it change the rest of the film for you as well? Well, apparently there there are some minor changes along the way. Um, And, you know, having having read about this, it it seems that what what happened was that, um, you know, in the the original Broadway uh, show that this was, you know, not the original Roger Corman film from the 1960, but the Broadway show had the down ending that they adapted and didn't work. And, and one of the reasons why it didn't work was Rick Moranis is likable and people like these characters. And so I think in the in the original version, I felt like, you know, Rick Moranis is kind of a, a, a doofus, but he's a lovable doofus. And I think this version, I feel much more aware of the Faustian bargain that he's making all along the way and his culpability in those crimes. And I think that. Uh, even though both versions preserve innocence for him in both murders, right? Yes. So it's convenient that the dentist dies of an overdose, you know, as he's there with a gun, yeah. you know, to kill him. I kind of hate that. And um, that, uh, what's his name? Mr. Um, oh. uh, Mushnick. Yes. Um, you know, sort of like the Audrey too kills Mr. Mushnick himself, sort of pulling in the tentacles. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Rick Moranis remains kind of innocent, but he's it's darker in the director's cut. You see, I think you see a little more of him chopping up the body. Yeah. So you're just like aware, more conscious of the fact that he he's chopped up a human being and fed it to a plant. Yeah, like yeah. There's more of a culpability in the director's cut. Like you know, he's definitely sort of like. He made. He went to kill um, Steve Martin, the the, the dentist, um, and he doesn't stop or save Mister Mushnick. Like he could quite easily drag him out the way. Like it shows him, you know, like he's close enough, and he he's doesn't basically. It's that sort of thing of like you know, uh, the Nolan Batman. I'm not going to kill you, but I'm not going to save you either. It's it's mm-hmm. it's that thing. It's it's death by omission, if you will. Um, Mm-hmm. But more than that, the scene in the, in the I'm not sure I want to get into because there's other things I want to get into. But there is a scene, there is a choice made in the director's cut, which seals the the you know, nails down that sort of coffin for for Seymour, and that is what happens to Audrey One. Yes, and and I'd forgotten about because I'd watched this a while ago, and I was, and then. I even I'd forgotten that bit. I remember the the, the crazy, uh, like you know, uh, ending after all the sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. basically, let's just sort of get to this. Let's get to the this alternative because it does have an implication for a lot of other things. And some of the endings, like you said, there were slightly slight um, edits, and some of the scenes are extended actually in the um, the director's cut. But the the um, the, the key ending comes. Um, at the very ending, and what happens is uh, Audrey Two um, calls um, all the names are going to be uh, Audrey One, and she sees and she comes home and she's shocked. And then basically Audrey, Audrey One two, being the girl love interest of, of yes, we, yes, we should re-explain the plot. Um, uh, and he basically attacks her, and, and Seymour saves her from being eaten, and they rush out of the thing, and you see. There is blood on her wedding dress, or this dress she's wearing as a wedding dress, and it's all tatty and torn. 
in the original theatrical cut, she sort of like she falls down, and then it's quite clearly a slightly different dress, mm. and but she's fine. She's sort of like ruffled, but she's fine. And then Seymour goes in and sort of confronts Audrey too. In this version, the original version or the alternate ending, she dies. Yeah, like, he still he pulls her out of the jaws. Yes, but but she's the dress is torn. There's blood. blood she's mortally injured, and they have a farewell, yeah. a beautiful farewell <laughs> conversation. But her, and her choice, and he follows up on it, is for her to be fed to Audrey too, mm-hmm. so that she can still be around him in some weird weird way. And then she dies. And, and also to further his fame, right? Because yes. Audrey too has brought him such fame that she she loves him and wants him to be a success, you know? Yeah. It's very sad, right? It is. It's done well. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's very good. But then he goes back into the shop. He carries Audrey 2, uh, sorry, he carries Audrey 1 back into the shop and literally feeds her to Audrey 2. And they have this sort of like slow sort of scene of, of her being in like taken into the jaws of, of Audrey too. Um, and it's really sort of like, it, it's not quick. It lasts minutes. Like, you know, it's, it's there for four or five minutes, this scene. It's long. And it's, it's, it's you're a bit like, this is mm. like really like, you know, uncomfortable sort of thing from, from Seymour's perspective. Um, and he, then, yeah, he, then, he lingers to, hold her hand as the deer disappears into the, I mean, it's really clear that he is, he is screwed up by yes. what he's watching. And that's the point. That's the thing. It's sort of th- this ending sort of tells me more than anything, like his, the damage this is all done. Cause mm-hmm. then he, he actually sort of, it breaks him. He's like, no, I can't do this anymore. And he runs to go to commit suicide. He goes to throw himself off a building and he's actually stopped by a, a no name actor. If I can remember in the, the director's cut, it's actually James Belushi in the theatrical cut. Who says, look, I took a cutting of it and I have here a mini Audrey 2 and we're going to sell them all across America. And, you know, and that's when he sort of he goes back and he confronts Audrey um, 2 and they get the Mean Green Mother song. And, and then we get the fact that he, he Audrey 2 eats Seymour. Yes, they, they have a confrontation in which Audrey 2 tears the house down around him. Yeah. Um, and ultimately you know and beats him up it's really quite vicious shoots a gun at him you know as well, as he's singing this, the mean green mother song one of the things to note there which again i'd not to this the first time i noted this the gun appears in both versions mm-hmm. however in the director's cut seymour fires it twice mm. at audrey too and then gets the gun taken off him in the theatrical cut he doesn't fire at all so Seymour never in this film, in the, in the theatrical, never discharges a weapon mm-hmm. or anything to cause people harm or anything other harm. They try and keep him as innocent as possible, culpable but innocent. Yeah. And in the director's cut, like you say, he sort of crossed that line and he, like, he fires twice and then two takes it off him and it becomes a silly Hollywood gun of multiple <laughs> bullets and stuff. Um, so in the theatrical cut, um, you have. Audrey being conveniently saved, and then it goes into directly from there into the conflict between Seymour and Audrey too. It preserves some of the footage of Audrey too tearing the the house down around them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and ultimately, all of a sudden, Rick Moranis, you know, Seymour uh, finds a live wire 
yeah. charges Audrey too, and you get a green screen shot that's not very good in which Audrey two just explodes. Yes. And then you get the sort of saccharine ending of the, you know, the two of them going off together and, and, and they have essentially gone into her fantasy sequence from somewhere that's green yeah. where they're in the sort of silly, you know, Levittown 1950s house. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little bit of ambiguity is preserved that there's like a little Audrey two out front, but he gets the ultimate happy ending. But even that is, you know, completely silly because they're literally in her fantasy. You know, I mean, it's like the movie is telling you this is an unrealistic fantasy, but it's what you want to see, assholes. It really feels like Frank Oz giving a bit of a middle finger. And I've never thought of that until watching this again. I felt the same. I was watching this and thinking like, yeah, Frank Oz didn't want to make this. Like, this is clearly reluctantly made because it happens so fast. Like that whole ending sequence is like, done, right, we're out. Um, but the other thing from the alternative end or the original ended is the plants win. And there is a, a sort of a prolonged sequence throughout the song, Don't Feed the Plants, um, of them taking over multiple Audrey's all over America. And it is absolutely brilliant. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it apparently cost $5 million at the time, you know, so I can't say it looks like a million bucks, but <laughs> it's amazing and it is so much fun. Mm. Um, you know, if, if anybody out there has not seen it, it, you know, it's on YouTube. You can track it down even if it's not supposed to be on YouTube. Um, and not only is the death of Audrey slow and you, you see her body, her dead body being devoured and... Mm-hmm. You know this goodbye, but then um, Seymour's death is also slow, and yeah. you see, you you know, there's this sort of like, oh my god, are they really going to do this? That you feel as he's being drawn into the maw, and you're like, oh no, they're. It seems like they're really going to do yes. this, and then you're like, oh, he's in the job. No, they're doing this, and. Then he disappears, and even then, the camera lingers on Audrey too, as Audrey too burps and spits out his broken glasses. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the it's so brilliant. I mean, to me, the the whole alternate ending is so brilliant from start to finish, in the sense of inevitability. Yes. That you know, I mean, it is so right that you realize that one of the most famous songs in, in probably musical history, you know, somewhere that's green is a Chekhov's gun yep. for this ending for the reprise of somewhere that's green is inside Audrey too. That's where she's going to go. Mm. It's, you know, that's a Chekhov's gun that doesn't fire. And then, you know, you don't notice because it's one of these, you know, fantasy intent classical musical numbers. But it's got this added payoff that is completely stripped from it. And everything about that that final ending, the the real ending, from um, from Audrey II dying and the inevitability of that to his suicide, which is another, you know, his attempted mm-hmm. suicide, which is another, like, shocking, wow, he immediately, you know. Yeah, it makes sense that would come immediately after. It's interrupted by this news. It makes sense that he would then run to, and, and go straight into this conflict. Um, and, and then to be devoured and you're like, oh, my God. And then this sequence is so shocking of 
you know, this wonderful miniature stuff and, you know, so many creative, like, Mars attacks, creative destruction moments. And, I mean, I could feel the the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. It's such an electric ending. Like I say, it, you, you, Mars attacks is a really good example. It's, it's, sorry, it's a really good comparison because it it keeps doing uh, every time you go. Oh, they're not going to do that. Oh, they are, and they're going to go do something else. Um, it, it just keeps going with those things, and I think it's absolutely. Um, it's it's just so well done. It's so well presented. Like you said, the puppetry is fantastic. The humor is dark. Um, and, and it plays so well with the music. Um, mm. The songs are fantastic. Like I said the whole. We'll go. We'll get into we'll, when we go recycle back to the beginning. We'll go through all. But um, yeah, I just want to say the alternate ending. The one thing for me is the reason I wanted to talk about it first. You know, have it a little bit asked about face, and there is a reason. Is because to me watching it. It made me realise, firstly, that that theatrical ending was was a cheap knockoff that Frank Oz clearly didn't want to make. But the director's cut is a complete film. Mm-hmm. Whilst I feel the theatrical version is fun, and that ending it all works. I love it. It's one, you know, it's a fantastic film. I've always loved it. But this the alternative ending, this director's cut ending, like you said, there's so many payoffs mm. and all these things. Um. It just feels like so much more of a piece that 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 dark humor that I don't want to say mean spiritedness because I don't say it's mean spirited, but there's a real sort of like edge to mm-hmm. some of the thing, you know. Um, it, it, it's it feels transgressive. It I mean, does. You know, yes, you, you understand perfectly why that did not work. Yes, I mean in '87. Right. I mean, you know, you can understand how shocking that would have been. I mean, kids, you know, we did Transformers, the movie. And, I, you know, I was thinking of that with how much I love the sort of like percussive mm. uh, forward momentum of that song over, you know, of Don't Feed the Plants over uh, the scenes of carnage and destruction. And and the the same point that I made about how things feel inevitable you know, as a writer, I have this big concern for sequencing, right? Mm-hmm. Like you see the civilians running back and forth and, the, you know, and everything keeps escalating, right? You want things to be presented in an escalating fashion. So you don't start with a building being destroyed. You start with, you know, uh, smaller threats and then you escalate to buildings being torn apart and a subway car going into a maw of Audrey and, and they're laughing hysterically as they're demolishing this sense of escalation. And then you go to the military response, you know, and, and too many times these days in films, they start with a military response and then you get the quiet moments. And I think, mm, you know, they're the, what's going on with the military now. Everything is just so perfect about that ending. Um, yeah. So, you know, the but well, as to why it didn't work, you know, I was thinking of Transformers, the movie about kids crying at Optimus Prime dying. You know, this was a movie that people took their kids to see, right? It's a yes. Rick Moranis comedy about a talking plant. Can you imagine the kids what? crying as these characters <laughs> slowly die and then what? they watch everyone get murdered? So this was like because it's a twelve now and twelve. So this was re this was reclassified when it was released on Blu-ray. So the theatrical version is a PG in this country. I think it's, I think it's a PG in the states. The theatrical version is a is a twelve 
Oh, sorry, the director's cut is a 12, which tells you sort of like they had to reclassify the film. That's how it sort of works. But you're right. I mean, it was 86 it was released. Um, just, just to sort of correct myself. But it's this thing of, like you say, even the branding of this, it's Rick Moranis, Steve Martin, John Candy, all these actors that you've gone, oh, I know them from Saturday Night Live. They're comedy actors. It's a Broadway show. It's a musical. It's, gonna, it's got Frank Oz. He does the Muppets. Mm-hmm. Like... Everything about this film tells you this is supposed to be a family film. And I can imagine those executives sitting down in that first sort of audience <laughs> screening and seeing that ending and being like, what, what have we got? Like, what the hell have we done? But I think it even happens before then. Uh, but I, so this was the point I wanted to make, because the ending, I think, changes a lot of the film. And so I'm going to go back to the beginning now. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. So, if, you know, we've talked about the director's cut, so we know what we're going to happen. And so the plot of the film is very simple. It's Rick Moranis picks up this, that he, Mr. Mushnick and Audrey, they all live in Skid Row, which is a known place in Los Angeles. Um, Except although it's New York in this version. This is New York in this version. But Skid Row is a known sort of, you know, it's yeah. where the, the, the lowest, the lowest, real poverty, poverty-stricken area. And he runs a florist, which is the bizarrest choice in this area. And Rick Moranis is sort of like an orphan who was sort of brought, you know, Mushnick has sort of brought him up a little bit and, and given him a job. And, and anyway, they find it. He finds a rare, what he believes to be a rare plant, uh, and calls it Audrey too. It then brings during, people during a total eclipse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, which is a great, again a great little sequence. I love that song. Um. And then the, the plant, and again, I love the way this film is played into silliness. Like they say, they put uh, Audrey 2 in the window, and then straight away someone comes in and says, Hey, excuse me, that's a fascinating plant you have in the window. And whilst I'm here, I'll buy 12 roses, that sort of thing. Um, and eventually the word spreads, they become more famous, and Audrey 2 grows bigger and bigger. And the, the, but the secret that he's keeping is that Audrey needs blood. Audrey 2, sorry, needs blood. Um, to survive and to grow and so he's sacrificing his own fingers to begin with and eventually uh audrey too gets to such a size that she has to have he she it doesn't really matter really the plant has to have uh full bodies human bodies and so got it you know so yeah um it gotta be bloody gotta be fresh yeah. um and so yeah he then sort of like he goes out to kill and through a circumstances he feeds audrey too until it all comes to sort of like the secret comes out and everything towards the end, which we've talked about. What I want to sort of mention is there's, there's two things actually I want to sort of throw out about the inevitability. The song Skid Row. Mm-hmm. So you get the sort of the little shop of horror song which opens, and you get the sort of the the um, the other thing we will talk about, which is the sort of the Grecian choir sort of, mm-hmm. um, which I love. Great little, you know, sort of fantastic part. But the song Skid Row. By- three black girls sort of like the echoing the supremes and yes and, yeah black groups from uh, mm. that era um and um but the song skid row goes through and it gives you this sort of render you know this thing on why skid row's crap and it gives you these little snippets of the characters and we'll get into audrey as a character in, in, in a little bit and her backstory and the tragic backstory she has but the last verse of Skid Row, I've got it in front of me here. Um, it says, gee, sure would be swell to get out of here. I'm not going to sing, don't worry. Uh, get out of here. 
bid the gutter farewell and get out of here. I'd move heaven and hell to get out of here. I do. I don't know what to get out of here, but a hell of a lot to get out of Skid Row. Um, um, people tell me there's no way out of, uh, of Skid, but believe me, I gotta get out of Skid Row. And that final verse of that song at the very beginning of the film tells you straight away that yeah they are gonna do anything and so when you watch the director's version and him him actually going along with audrey to audrey's request to be given to the plant you i fully accept that sort of there's still a part of seymour that's like yeah i'm gonna feed this body into audrey too and then i'm gonna sustain the fame and i'm gonna get out of skid row because i am gonna do anything and I feel like that's the tur- like a real turning point where like this again you said about the payoffs that verse meant more to me watching the director's cut than mm. watching the theatrical cut because in the theatrical cut there's choice to not get out of Skid Row and to sort of oh they do because they have the horrible twee ending as we said yeah. but that choice that he makes to sort of use Audrey Two's bo- sorry Audrey's body and feed it to Audrey Two feels more in line with what this song is telling me at the very beginning of the film. Yeah, that's a very good point. And and I think that, um, you know, the the theatrical ending to me feels like it would almost work in the director's cut as a fantasy sequence of Audrey after um, Seymour proposes marriage, but before mm. uh, Audrey, too, gives her the phone call. Right. Yes. As she's preparing to leave with Seymour and it's like this is what it's going to be like we're going to have our house you know um you could almost save that footage uh so that's how sort of sickening and saccharine and out of place with reality um it is compared to the rest of the film Mm. and you know you were talking about sort of skid row and I I was very taken especially on this viewing of how racially diverse the skid row is presented as and this presentation of you know right away you get into domestic violence yeah you know Audrey's boyfriend is hitting her uh you know and you you have uh you know the downtown song about you know poverty and how we're all traveling to basically serve starbucks to rich people you know and going back to these horrible conditions and this is so I mean, this is so obviously prescient. It's so um, relevant to our times, but it also gets at what good musical can do. And I, I'm a big fan of, of musicals. Um, good musicals have this ability to address social issues and address themes in a way that oftentimes could not be done in contemporary cinema and mainstream works that you couldn't address some of these issues. But if you put them in a musical, it's like, well, you know, South Pacific can address interracial relationships Mm. in a way that you couldn't get away with in the mainstream because it's like, oh, it's a musical. It feels good, (laughs) you know? So that kind of like wrapping it in with that nice bow of a musical lets you get at those issues and this is a dark movie right from the start and those themes are dark the themes about americana better homes and gardens and you know the american dream and what this has to say about it are really complex and fascinating (laughs) and i think all of that gets polished over in the theatrical version 
Yes, and that's the thing, I think. It does. It tries to sort of give you... Because, again, you said about the, ne- the inevitability of this film. Like, you know, it's no mistake this is, this is set in Skid Row. You know, that's the point. It's in this idea, this whole thing about Gotti get out of Skid Row. Like, it's the fact that they do in the theatrical version, you know, is it, almost counter to the to- the rest of the tone of the film. Mm-hmm. Um because of what they've done and, and so like I say when you watch the director's cut you do go oh okay that is much more in line like this is inevitable they were never going to win it's always going to be this way you know they can't do this uh, something's not going to let them but even like audrey as you says, like she has a, a verse in that uh, song and she sort of talks about the you know guys on skid row and she does like say from the offset the film like you look you know i won't find the lyrics again but like, there's a verse where she's like yes guys you know they'll hit you and they'll talk down to you and you know i wish i could find a guy and you're like you know obviously they have a, again like you said it, it it gives you this way of addressing them without not without you know without really addressing it if you don't want to see it but that thing again where you have um audrey and, and seymour coming together at that corner and sort of talking about you know seeing about how to get out of skid row um, and you know they're going to get together. That's the point. But her, her, Audrey, you know, in this film is a true victim. You know, and it's from the very beginning. I'm like, you know, I, again, watching this time, really listening to things to try and understand things a bit better, give it that analysis and analytical eye. Straight away, I'm like, Jesus Christ! Like this film. Is telling me that she is beaten on a regular basis, like even before you meet the the dentist and stuff. Like, and it starts then with her going into work for the first day with a black eye. Mm-hmm. That's how you first meet her. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you've told me this, and, this, and then obviously that play that, that's when it goes into the song. You know, you're, you're telling me this, like this is how this film is going to play out. And Steve Martin being Steve Martin, like you know, you've seen the jerk, you've seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. You know, he's funny. And he is funny in this. Like I love him in this. He's fantastic. But there's also several scenes where you're a bit like, yeah, I know this is a comedy, but like the it's implications. Yeah, the implications. Not the fact he's a monster because he is, but even like the physical implications. Um, you know, she falls off the motorbike and he rides off. Yeah, she's that is a crucial scene there right and then she's getting she's she's struggling to open the door to the flat or to the apartment and he's sort of there going like yeah come on get in that flat woman i'm gonna smack you like you know he's a true atheist first of all he's left her behind yeah she's got to run having fallen off his bike she's got to run to catch up with him and then he says you're stupid for falling off the bike no concern for her (laughs) safety And then says, open the door. As she's struggling, obviously, nervously with this, you know. Terrified. She is terrified in that. Yes. And and she's struggling with the keys, you know, with this pressure. And he says, like, hurry up, you slut. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He is, well, you know, and you think, okay, maybe it's gonna, it's gonna, you're gonna be left with that because that's bad enough, but it doesn't. It goes in, and you get the the sort of rear window, you get the silhouette, and he does. He sort of like he he tells her to get basically S and M gear ready, and then slaps her, and you're just like, it's it's all playing into a part because this is all obviously that scene happens whilst Audrey Two is manipulating. Seymour into saying because that thing of like you know some people deserve to die, 
go find me someone who deserves to die. Which is true, but like, you know, murder still murder. Um, but it, it, again, like that character sort of, and I like the way this film does it, it sort of lulls you into liking the character because it's Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. And his, his sort of, his first reintroduction is the sort of like, you know, um, be a dentist song, which I can I can probably sing v- verbatim. I won't, don't worry. But I could, I love that song, and it's such a fantastically well done uh, musical number, including like from you know, the shot taken from inside a mouth, which is yes. great. Yes. Um, and so you're set up for this, like, oh, he's a real weirdo, and then you're like, no, he is an absolute monster. Like mm-hmm. he does deserve to die. And so this film sort of like serves you up something sweet in the sign of a song, like a catchy number that you're like, oh, I love this song, and then punches you in the gut with the realization of what it is you're actually being shown um and it's so written so well to do that um it is incredibly impressive yeah on the other hand the likability of steve martin just Mm. like the likability of rick moranis sort of those actors kind of undercut some of what the film's trying to do which i think contributes to that theatrical ending right Mm -hmm. um i mean if if we look at this more objectively even in the theatrical cut uh rick moranis uh seymour has still made his faustian bargain he's still you know a a horrible guy and uh the dentist is a horrible guy but because they're you know it's hard to hate steve martin the way you sh- want to hate a, uh, a girlfriend beater, right? But I think um, that's the point. I think that I, I, I almost think I think this is part of what Frank Oz is trying to do. Like he's challenging you because he's saying, like, I'm going to give you Steve Martin, and I'm going to give you doing him doing one of like you know like an Elvis number, like a crazy yeah. dentist Elvis number, and then I'm going to make you see what an absolutely vile person he is, and I challenge you to still you know enjoy yeah exactly yeah and i think it's the same i think that's why they cast rick moranis i think rick moranis is there's a part of me that thinks yes you know should this be cast as someone who's a bit more schlubby should it be someone a bit more i don't don't know i couldn't think of someone to replace him but it's this thing again of sort you're gonna you know you're supposed to sort of feel for rick moranis you know for, for seymour he's supposed to be He's a loser. Like every, everything in this happened, everything in this film happens to him. You know, he's he has no real agency. You know, like he doesn't kill the you know, Steve Martin's dentist. He doesn't kill Mr. Mushnick. He doesn't kill Audrey. He feeds him back and he makes that choice to do it. But he, you know, like you said, he 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 chops up the dentist, which is one thing. But like he, you know, could he? Would he have actually fired the gun? You never know, right? And so like nothing. He, he never actually does anything. Like he was willing to sacrifice himself. You know, he he's the one that's given his not 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 in the big sense, but like to begin with, like, it's his fingers um, that are covered in bandages. Like he's feeding Audrey from his own blood. Um, and even when the even sort of he's he knows there's a danger because when he goes on the radio station. Um, and yeah. they're in the, in the in the sort of the 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 puppet that tries to bite. And again, I, I want to talk about the puppetry in this film at some point, but tries to bite the sort of the the woman's bottom. Um, and he sort of grabs it, and he knows there's a danger to this thing. 
Exactly. Um, but he's still willing to be sort of like, no, no, you can suck on my blood. That's it. I, me, me giving up is okay. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, um, so I think that's the point, you know, if, if, this, if this character was too schlubby or too, I don't know, too downtrodden or greasy or in the wrong vein, yeah, I don't think you get that same... You would expect him to kill someone, and you don't want to have to expect, you know, Seymour to have to do the thing. Because the other thing as well is I think this film originally wants you to think you're going to get the theatrical ending. Right. Because the director's cut is supposed to pull you out of it. That's the point. Because, you know, so it's, it's almost like the, 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 you said the theatrical ending gives you what the film is almost teasing you, and then you get it. Right. But the director's cut is like, I'm teasing you this and I'm not going to give it to you because you, you're going to get this inevitability. And if you had like a more sort of greasy character and you got, then got the theatrical ending, yeah. it would feel more like a cheat. Yes. Well, I mean, which it is. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I want to make a comment about this and, and the dovetails to the points you were making about Skid Row and also to... Uh, sort of how Seymour is depicted and his character. I think that if you if you look at those two endings, um, the they're incredibly different in the way they comment on or fulfill the themes of the movie. And I think mm-hmm. that's what you're getting at. So I mean, if if we take the central themes that are set up at the beginning as sort of poverty. You know, the American dream, you know, with somewhere that's green and getting out of of poverty Uh, and also this concept of Seymour as as you were saying, a sort of passive nice guy that he's the nice guy as opposed to the dentist. Right. Yeah. So the theatrical version says the American dream can be yours. Yes. Yes. You might make some horrible mistakes along the way. You might commit some crimes. But they are ultimately pardonable if you are a good guy and if you get rich. Yes. Uh, it will all be smoothed over. You will find your natural level um, and succeed. Right. It's the, it's the 80s. Greed is good. Capitalist, you know, um, dream uh, achieved. Right. Yeah. The only thing holding back the poor is really <laughs> lack of initiative. It's the same and, now. It's just, and this is what it felt for. Sorry to interrupt, but it's that thing yeah. again you hear now with like with with um, you know they're not going to increase minimum wage and people are like, well, you just need to work harder. That's yeah. the thing. And we have people over here, you know, on the right who say, well, uh, hunger is a good motivator. Yeah. Um, and and they're saying that about kids in schools who are being mm. deprived of school lunches. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if it ever does, but I mean, you know, we have. I mean, there are multiple versions of the American dream, but the most uh, horrifying version is the idea that anybody can succeed. And yeah. if you fail to, it's just because of your process failing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that the the original ending really gives a stamp of approval to those worst aspects of the American dream and of, yes. you know, look, you can't escape poverty if you want to. Maybe he got a little lucky, but. It is possible. And then it also gives a stamp of approval to this really what's come to be seen as toxic masculinity, this really horrible idea 
that the good guy deserves the girl. Yes. And we've seen that, whether it's Revenge of the Nerds, we've seen that in every movie. But here is this passive guy who was who was actually a classic nice guy in the sense that he's actually an evil son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. uh, he is perfectly willing to compromise his principles. Is he better than the dentist? Sure. But, you know, he probably can't think of, of hitting a woman. But at the same time, he is manipulative. He is more than happy to, um, you know, to do horrible things. And he really doesn't know much about Audrey. He's not really interested in who she is as a person. He just thinks, I deserve her. I'm a good guy. I should be the one who gets the girl. And in the theatrical version, it again puts a stamp of approval yeah. on that really toxic idea that, you know, if you're a nice guy, if you don't beat up women, you should get the uh, hot girl at the end or the mm -hmm. love interest or whatever. Whereas the, you know, the real ending um, says, no, there's no escaping poverty. Screw your illusions. You know, that nice guy is actually completely toxic and he's going to get that girl killed. There's yeah. nothing good that's going to come out of this. There's not going to be a happy relationship for this passive, toxic, manipulative guy. Well, no, I, I agree. Because there's things in this film, again, I, I noticed watching it this time. And, it, it, you know, there may be times when you and I are going to say things like, I, I want to highlight right now, I love this film. Like, I'm a big fan of this film. It's, it's uh, like you, I listen to the soundtrack. You know, I love the music. But there's little moments in this film now that I recognize and say, you know, maybe it's just like you say, it's dated or whatever. But even naming it Audrey 2 mm -hmm. is like a passive aggressive kind of pass at her. You know, yeah. the way he says it, because he says, like, you know, she's oh, that's so cute. What is it? He says, well, I've called it Audrey 2. I don't know. And she goes, oh, and makes that little noise. And it, it's it's like it's for him it's like a little victory. Oh, I've, I've you know I've gained something in the in you know so that's one in the the win column. You know, boom. Um, and so it's it's things like that that you're like, yeah, you like say there's no you know he he is being rewarded for being, um, you know like I say passive for being weakling. Now that's not to say, you know, yeah, you all have to be, um. You know, super assertive and confident. And that's, that's not the point, but it's the little comments, where you, little moments when you do, you realise that, like, actually, Seymour's not a great guy either. Mm -hmm. Even the so the song that sort of hits it home. No, he's me, a prick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the song where Audrey too manipulates him. That sort of like you know, mm -hmm. some people deserve to die. Um, when he talks about it and he says, um, yeah, you know, I want a Harley machine. Um, I'm, I'm trying not to sing cruising around like I'm James Dean. Like he has these images in his head, and you know he says about going to the guys on the corner, making the guys on the corner turn green, and so he wants people to feel jealous of him. He wants to, and again, like it's that thing of you know, I don't want to do the not so much I don't want to do the work, but yeah, I have this vision, and this vision is being. It's not so much. That's the weird thing. It's not so much getting out of Skid Row. No, no point in that song does he say that his vision doesn't match up with Audrey's. Because Audrey's like, I want to go, like, say, someplace that's green. I want to go find a house. I want to find, have, I want to have this family fantasy. You know, the nuclear white family. White picket fence. The white picket fence. All that. He's like, I want a Harley, 
and I yeah. want to tool around in Skid Row and make people jealous because I've got success. That's what I want to do. I want people to look up to me. And, and, so and part of that is is guys looking and saying he's got that that hot girlfriend, right? Yeah. She's an object. She's part of you know the the male fantasy of success and saving it. He wants to save it. He mm. wants to be the savior. So it's that thing again of being the hero. Um, Another bad nice guy trait, right? Yes, exactly. Like you know, I want to be the savior, and but I want everyone to look up and be impressed by me. And it, it, it sort of comes out in that frustration and stuff. Um, and and so yeah, it, it, it's that sort of like you know, it's that, it's almost um, when's it going to be my turn? Kind of approach, isn't it? Well, you know that frustration. Well, when's it going to be my turn? And Audrey too is going well. You know, I can give you all these things. You know, I can give you a you know a guest spot on Jack Parr. I can do all these kind of things that you want. You you've got to do. You've just got to be a bit proactive. And so he fully goes, you know, when he goes carrying a gun with the intention of killing uh, the dentist. But, um, yeah, so I don't think so, I'm, I'm, I'm funnily enough. I'm, there are people listening to this that are probably going to be like, you know, you're ruining this film for me. <laughs> um, well, because they is, love Seymour, uh, yeah, and Audrey. This is the thing, like, yeah, it's a great romance, or it's a, you know, so this is the, this is what no. it should be. But it's not, and that's the no. yeah, and that's what I think. Yeah, this film really isn't that story. But not forgetting that that's how this film was marketed, mm-hmm. and still is. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a big difference between again, there's a big difference between the theatrical and the uh, and the real ending. And I think mm-hmm. that when I was a kid, I'm sure I, I mean, I did not see Seymour as fatally compromised in any way. I only knew that theatrical cut. I did not. I saw him as, you know, sort of, um, you know, a little bit of a weak, shy guy. Uh, I saw that he was being presented that way. But, you know, I mean, I was watching movies like Revenge of the Nerds and I totally got, you know, I totally got the impression that, yeah, you know, um, you know, you you stick it out and the nice guy wins. And those ideas did not survive long once i entered the dating world um (laughs) and for good reason because you know that sort of stuff is is very toxic and i think that there are a lot of guys who who think that they're nice and a big part of being nice is i wouldn't hit someone i wouldn't give you a black eye Mm. yeah but you don't know anything about me you don't really share my dream of a white picket fence what do they really have in common except wanting to get out of there um and and not having other options both of them have no other options yeah yeah and that's the thing it becomes limiting but also i say this idea is the fact of the matter is like you say they sort of find each other because there's nobody else Mm. um and and also like you say you know he is impressed by her There's there's a there's a great line uh, later on, when she gives more information, where she meets the dentist, uh, I've just it's Orin Scrivello is, uh, is, is what it's called, um, and she says about she works in a club, and she, she was working like in the hours that she wasn't working at the, the florist, she was working somewhere else in this, in this bar in this club. Um, the, is it called the Gutter? Oh, that was it, isn't it? I met him in the Gutter, and it's, that's yeah. the name, which is an apt name because she sees it as the lowest point. Um, 
And she says, like, you know, I had to wear these tacky, horrible outfits. Not like this classy thing she's wearing now. And it's obviously supposed to be that she's wearing this sort of, like, you know, bustier kind of dress that's forcing her boobs up on this other stuff. Um, but again, like, you know, you, you don't know. That's not revealed until the, pretty much the end. And you're like, oh, there's more to this. Like, you know, you don't know what that club is. You don't know what she's had to do. You know, what does that thing entail? Is it, you know, I'm not going to say it's a, it's a brothel or anything like that, but like, how how else has she had to, comp- how else has she been compromised by this life that she is trying to drive away from? So, and again, like, you know, every movie today has to get a prequel or a reboot, and they've talked about, you know, a new Little Shop Force. <laughs> I think you have settled it that what we really need is we need an Audrey Year One story. That's just the <laughs> darkest, what Audrey had to endure in that club prior to why does she see Seymour as such a possible way out? Why is she so desperate? We need mm. two hours of the darkest shit imagined. <laughs> uh, hey, I want it to be the most emo musical we've ever had. Like, <laughs> um, But that, yeah, there's little things like that, like you say, that I didn't catch until this time. When you do, you go, hang on. You know, like why? Why is she staying? And she also says about because you say about the options. She says that about the dentist. Well, what? What else? At least I've got. At least I've got a. At least I've got a fella. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, so that's your. That's your position. Having to be with someone is your default position, and he just happens to be a doctor. You know, and she's always a doctor. And I'm like, you know, yeah. You know, clearly it doesn't work that way, but. <laughs> Her mentality is fascinating. Of like, you know, well, I've got to be in a relationship. I've got to be doing this. I've got to do that. She 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 almost wants to see it as a way out, but it's clearly not. Well, uh, and I know people like that. I mean, to this day, I think that she comes off as the most dated of the characters because, hmm. I obviously this is set in the sixties. You know, yeah. the cars look old, but it has a sort of light touch with that. It, it was perfectly possible as a kid to sort of keep that in the back of my mind, but it's not front of mind. It's not a mm-hmm. period piece. And so she does come off as a little ditzy, a little, um, not only is she interested in the sort of better homes and gardens, fifties, you know, the disgusting manicured lawn, you know, and two twin beds, just like TV. There's a kind of like, you know, innocence to, her mentality that's sort of like a stereotypical kind of like squeaky uh not too bright sort of stereotype of a woman um so i think that is the most dated although i do i do know a lot of people i'm sure you do too who Mm -hmm. just like don't seem to ever be able to not be in a relationship and will justify horrible relationship decisions based on like well you know this is what it is for now. I don't have a better option. It's like, you're not going to die if you have to live alone, you know, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've had, I've had, I've had friends that I've known in years past say things like, you know, well, it's better than being single. And you're like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that's the case. You know? (laughs) Yeah. You mm. do nothing but complain about this person. You're clearly, this is a horrible match. You're clearly miserable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things to highlight as well is that um, Audrey, uh, played by Ellen Green, is, I think, the only one to come over from the Broadway musical. Um, 
And so she obviously sort of nailed that. She knew the role, and I think she gets. And I think, like you say, she's dated. It's the film is set in nineteen sixty three, just to confirm. So, um, um, and and so she knows this character, and she gets. And I think her background of having done it in the musical tells me that she's sort of got. She's done Audrey Year One in her head, like you know, mm-hmm. like she. I think she gets. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I find that sort of that's really that's why I find it so fascinating because she is there's so much depth to her, the clothes she wears, you know, this thing she wants to this image she wants to present, um, she's desperate to present to get out of Skid Row, like you know, you you see it more than anything when you hear the downtown song at the very beginning, like you know, it goes to all the people, and they're all very sort of um, archetypal as you you know you see that sort of sixties to eighties poor, you know, sort of you would see this in any other film and she's the one that's got like you know the brightly colored dress and the sort of the accessories the high heels stiletto high heels and she stands out like a sore bloody thumb in that dance number in that in that song and it's clear she's she presenting herself in this way is a way of her making herself feel better like, well, a possible escape right to yes. you know like it's dressed oh. for the job you you want not the one you have She's dressing yes. for the life that she wants, you know, with a white picket fence rather than where she really is. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And so, so her ending. So, so again, but again. This thing of the theatrical ending versus the, the, the original ending again, like if you follow that path, what Audrey is looking mm. for again, I like see her, her achieving it. It, it sort of. <sighs> undermines the sort of like I said the themes of what she's been doing throughout the film um but again it's almost like i don't like you say it's, it rubber stamps certain things from her perspective as well saying like um yeah get yourself noticed by making yourself tie yourself up and you'll you know a good man will find you or you know you can find these things and it's it sort of um it, it starts to cheapen some of the, some of the when you think about it you scratch away it starts to cheapen some of the characters um mm. And I now understand why Frank Oz hated the ending so much. Um, so yeah, no, that's why I find her so in. Like she is more interesting to me than Kraut than, than Seymour. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah. Well, we get less to go. We get less to go on with her. And I, I think <clears> you're right that there are those the, those lines like you pointed out that imply there's a story there. I think that sometimes I feel like she's that ditzy sort of persona is taken too far and maybe it's all an mm. act right i mean I, i've certainly you know seen that uh as an act uh in real life but then she when she has even in the good ending when she dies she says i want to be with you forever seymour i want to put me in the plant mm. i will sacrifice myself for your fame and be able to be with you, you know, in some sort of spiritual, symbolic way as opposed to physically. Um, interesting to me that they clearly, pretty clearly, have never had sex before Seymour proposes marriage. Yes. Super, super red flaggy. <laughs> okay. Um, I, but, yeah, I mean, I think that the way she sacrifices herself, even in that the good ending, while beautiful, and while it does sort of imply that if there is a way out of 
the ghetto for Seymour, it's going to have terrible pain. You know, you could imagine a version in which Seymour gets out and somehow the world isn't destroyed, but he is able to get out with all this money and just leaves Audrey too, and in which he is a success, but he is miserable. I mean, mm-hmm. he's killed the only people he cared about <laughs> to get to that position. And that the movie doesn't go that way, but that would also be a terrible comment on, on what it takes to succeed in a supposedly meritocracy, um, a supposed meritocracy. But I think the way that she sacrifices herself and is so eager not just to marry somebody, but to, um, you know, that's one thing, to change her dream to, well, I'll just be in this plant and you're the one that matters, you'll have success, does feel a little, it works symbolically, but it feels a little superficial uh, as a character. Yeah, um, she's taken that one eighty, or not one eighty. She's gone on like it's like a it's a it's a hard left turn, isn't it? Sort of like you know. But then again, I saying that it, it maybe it's the way it's put together, but it doesn't feel wrong for her to make that decision because, as you say, she's always put herself bef- after. You know, she's put other people first. You know, whether it be the the terrible dentist or even Seymour, like she's looking. Um to be in the relationship and in this point like you know she's sort of she knows she's dying there's no there's nothing that so this thing again it's, it's, the, it's the romanticism of it isn't it it's a romantic ideal this idea of being together in this ideal if i'm part of the plant then we'll be together forever it's sort of it's a romantic ideal that sort of like well if i can't have a, a if i can't have the fantasy life i can have that you know, almost like a gothic romantic death um mm. And so that it's it's that sort of she's making that choice rather than be rather than yes leave my bo- my body here in this sort of like trash strewn street. <laughs> right, I think I mean I I agree with you. It feels right. Certainly, it feels right emotionally. It feels right symbolically. I do think that it would be augmented by, you know, uh, some reference back to Skid Row, and mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it wouldn't take much for her to say you're clearly getting out of Skid Row, right? You're on the cover of Life magazine. Um, this is how I'm finally going to get out is inside Audrey 2, you know, mm. going to Hollywood or whatever. Um, you know, at least one of us got out, that kind of thing. And there are some of those themes that sort of aren't as delicately woven through the fabric of the the musical as I'd like, yeah. even in the, the good version. Yeah. No, I'd agree with that. I'd agree that, that that more could be done to sort of capture that that thought. Um, she's but, also talking about depictions of gender. She's also almost raped by Audrey too. <laughs> there is the implied rape scene. Yes, when she first comes in and he sort of um, lifts her skirt up and that sort of thing, and, and says, "Relax, darling. It'll be easier." Yeah, yes. and it's talking about eating her, but yeah. there are tentacles menacing her and lifting up her dress. And yes, it's it's a it's a hurt, it's an early sort of uh, um, drift into hentai sort of uh, you know for for American musicals. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about Audrey too. Um, you know, um, and and this this invasion plan. Um, but Audrey too, as as a character, like you said, this Faustian deal, 
Um, and and the knowledge that that sort of Audrey Two has, or Chewie, as you as as they call it, is uh-huh. th- this ability to manipulate people and and situations. This sort of thing of like, I know I can get you out of this. Like me being unique is going to sort of lead to this situation. Feels, you know, and, and we've talked about this before, like very coincidental as a plan. You know, like all these things have to fall into place mm-hmm. for it to work. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's a bit like Audrey, Audrey 2's plan feels a bit shaky as a plan, but I, I, I'm willing to forgive it. It's not a problem. But <laughs> what were your thoughts on that? Well, yes, I, I have thought about that. I think it's not clear at all how Audrey 2 appears at quote unquote the old Chinese man's uh, <laughs> uh, plant shop mm-hmm. uh, on the street. I'm not sure how that happens, and it seems as if it's the takeover plan is dependent on somebody giving it blood, and then also somebody else taking cuttings. And also that person who gives the blood escalating to larger things. And in the post, the sort of patent like flag that that begins the sort of final insane carnage sequence in the final musical number, Mm. you're told subsequent to the events that have been depicted um, this awkward phrasing that's done for comedic effect that very similar events occurred. And I think. Yeah, how many people are going to to fall for this? I I also wonder like how um how Audrey 2 becomes uh, Audrey 2 is sort of depicted like a puppy in early yes. scenes that's sort of like looking and but has no eyes, has no ears. How did Audrey 2 absorb the culture enough to like get all of these pop culture references yeah. and you know but at the end of the day, I don't care because it's a talking plant. Plant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because otherwise, the musicals don't, numbers don't work. And so, two of the things that are in my head is, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna give this the full thought process, this is a coordinated <laughs> attack. Audrey two isn't the only one. There are, as it says, there are other instances of this going on all around the world, and different stories could be playing out. You know, some succeed, some won't. But again, I like the fact you do get two versions of the end of this. So in the in the theatrical version, it's actually James Belushi turns up and just he doesn't have a cutting of the plan, but he has a plan and a contract that says, "Order to great, um, but we would like to take cuttings and we can then grow it and sell it across America and that sort of thing." In the in the director's cut, you actually get someone turn up with an Audrey two who's like, "Oh, we stole a cutting, but look, we might have." cultivate it to be this little plant and we want to sell it and that's what what happens um so i like the fact but again it fits into this idea of um what's we're looking for um exploitation you know everybody's looking for if anything i actually prefer well they both work for me because someone stole a cutting to 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 come back and like we go because the guy who steals it says well i've sort of come back as a courtesy we don't have to because I've got this plant and you've got no patent on this plant. So I could, I've come back as a courtesy. We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, and we just want to sort of cut you in. James Belushi, when he comes, he needs 
Um, and he's willing to sell it as a contract and all this other thing. So that whole scene. But they both play it in a similar way. It's like there's someone who's gone, this is a good idea. It comes into the whole thing again for me, a bit like in Gremlins. Um, there's a similar sentiment in Gremlins when they first sort of find out about um, uh, the Mogwai. So when the first, when the Mogwai first multiply the first time round, and they're all sat there with the bill on the Christmas tree, and you get sort of uh, Randall Peltzer says, "Could you imagine a Mogwai in every house? They could re- they could replace yeah. the family pet." And it's the same sentiment where you go, "No, this thing is is <laughs> a little monster that shouldn't happen." Um, and that's why, but this idea, and I hear it a lot again. It goes into this idea of the American dream. You know, uh, you'll have one in every home in America. Wasn't there a pet rock? at one point mm-hmm. like, you know and again it was like someone must have thought the same thing of like we can sell a rock and they'll have one like, every home in america is going to have a pet rock like it, it's it's almost like a cliche it's a joke but it again it fits into this idea that like you know it clearly comes with other information i'm not going to worry about they are alien that's fine and they get this information but i, I kind of like the plan relies on the greed of people uh-huh. yeah um, and that's a further commentary on sort of you know, these social themes of sort of uh, capitalism and poverty and all of this. And and I, I like that, too. I like the the satire there of we're more than willing to not really investigate this and, and push this product out, even though it's going to completely destroy society. There's certainly no due diligence going on there. There's just this yeah. is a fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, you think about how many horrible products were marketed, especially in the 60s mm. um, and, and the 50s, uh, you know, sort of, um, um, you know, with what is that that SNL skit where they say, you know, uh, Johnny Astronaut, you know, yes, sir, this is nothing but a plastic bag and a string. You know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there were a lot of really horrible toys back then. Uh, and dangerous ones, but, but I do like this commentary on, on on capitalism. But again, I always want I always want Seymour to be more culpable. Yeah. and you do see him signing all these different contracts during the Life magazine sort of fame mm. sequence. And I almost think it would be better if yeah, there was a clause in one of those contracts that you signed that lets us do these cuttings anyway. You know, you, 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 you fine print. Yeah, yeah you've, sure. already, you've already signed this away. This isn't. A, we're coming as a courtesy, like you know, <laughs> that actually probably would play better. Like the guy come back and going, look, well, you signed this contract. We don't need to, you involved you anymore, but we've come back as a courtesy because you, you know you started it. You know most about how to grow these plants. Blah blah blah. That would have been mm-hmm. that be an interesting way. The thing for me is again, I said this film comes out in eighty six. At that point. And it hadn't happened really. It starts in the late seventies, comes into the eighties. Is this idea of the toy for Christmas? What is the toy to have at Christmas? And you know whether it be like the GI Joe aircraft carrier or like you know the new version of Optimus Prime or the call it by car- its name, the USS Flag. Okay, <laughs> I didn't know what that is. And uh, yeah, I will <laughs> one day. We will one day. It was requested, putting it out there, that we do the G.I. Joe movie. We will do it one day. Um, but like you know, that idea of, of you know, um, having to rush out and get the toy for Christmas or like the fad toy was a real 80s thing, wasn't it? That sort of thing of the shops haven't got, you know, oh, I can pick up, I can pick up, um, you know, Cliff Jumper or I can pick up, um, you know, I can pick up the Winston Zedmore or the Ray Stance, but I can't. Nowhere selling the, the Peter Venkman. I'm all out of those. 
this well, and all that kind of started with Star Wars and yes. you know those toys not being ready and and giving kids a coupon for here's a piece of paper Merry Christmas <laughs> that still happens um but again like you say this idea of the commercial fad toy like it, that ending clearly sort of in this whole film sort of like dives into that again and it's again why that director's cut ending works so much better that that scene where they're all clamoring to get an Audrey 2 off the shelf to get like you know is so well done and the fact about it is like you know 86 well, you, it, it, it gets played out again and again the film jingle all the way with with arnold you know that whole film centers around this concept the start of the film um um oh the what's the, the christmas movie about uh krampus krampus starts with the same thing this idea of everybody storming in to get the toy that sort of thing so it's become a cliche but again not in 86 so again like this thing's you know is really satirizing quite heavily sort of like this idea of the american dream this idea of the american you know uh greed is good in the 80s and stuff so um yeah and and that the whole i mean there it's taking the the whole sort of like american dream thing of succeeding due to merit the whole meritocracy bullshit uh which we know is a lie but it's a convenient class um structure enforcing lie and expanding that not just to how it damages these characters and this this vortex in which these characters live in but expanding that to a wider stage on, on which it's a sort of a wider criticism of capitalist culture mm-hmm. in which something that is fundamentally dangerous, possibly civilization destroying, yeah. right? Which is that a metaphor for fossil fuels um, is just marketed because mm-hmm. you can make money on it. And ultimately it's stupid. Nobody needs this plant except it's yeah. been on TV, right? It's like as seen on TV. My parents love this shit, right? It's like, yeah, as, yeah those are some cheap shells. There's nothing special about them. They're just chief shells, mom. Um, but it, it it is that fat. And, and going past 86, there were those um, like Cabbage Patch Kids mm-hmm. and, you know, the mm. the what were the the furry sort of um, the Care Beanie bed? Babies. Oh, Beanie stuff. Babies. God, yes. Where parents were having fights in the aisles, you know. And I, I remember getting a 1989 Batman TV where the first time I ever saw the Batcave. There was one. And my brother and I both went to it and said, I've got to have it. And we instantly started a fist fight in the aisle that ended with me screaming, I want you dead. And I like that's the level of just, you know, we both needed that toy. Um, but that's the further these that, that, that is the level of, you know, of, of like hype these things generated and you know like you say it's 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 i did the same thing like you say you, you know um it, it, there are christmas films based around this stuff the film that you know the santa claus with tim allen has a whole section at the end about the toy they they you know the the toys they didn't get as 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 kids you know because they weren't available whatever and it's 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 these you know, this whole sort of thing is very sort of centered around this idea of fad toys and, and that sort of thing. And so, so I love all that. I do think that that whole ending for that section is is, is so good. And I, that's what I like about this film. That's what I'm saying is, is you know, I think now I've seen it with, you know, I've seen it before, but the integrated director's cut ending, this whole film works as a piece. Mm. Um, and it works as a satire of 
80s you know and, and that sort of thing. but it still works today like you know tamagotchi i can think of others i can reel these off things like this idea of what audrey 2 would be um but yeah it, it just works so well that that whole ending um but the other thing as well is the thing about audrey 2 is the voice mm. now i forgot the guy's the guy's name um, and he was a musician he was a singer and i can't remember i've just, just sort of it's um Levi Stubbs, or Levi Stubbs, sorry, Levi Stubbs, and his voice in this film is so iconic, you know, and everyone's imitated the feed me, see more. I'm not going to do it. Uh-huh. Like, I've too left on it. Um, and so his singing voice is fantastic. But like, even when he's talking and stuff, like it becomes like that. He bec- he works as that Faustian sort of manipulator because he's so cool. Yeah. Well, um, it's a sort of like deep baritone, you know, yeah. sort of, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that affected you anyway, but like, I just, I just think like you know, Audrey Two is clearly the villain of the piece. Like the the, mm. the laugh and everything, mm. you know, it's so iconic. Um, but it works. So you just like, yeah, Audrey Two is cool. Like there's just a, you yeah. know, there's just a sort of that, um, which is silly. It could, but it comes back to the thing of being challenged of going like, no, the villain is going to destroy our planet and you know eat us all. But you're going to get a really cool musical number while you do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, you're right that Audrey 2 is, is iconic and, and, and that voice is so important. I also think that, you know, I mean, it, it's the way in which like this is so well put together. I do have criticisms. You mm-hmm. know, we might get into a few more, but it is so well put together and I and I think it sort of transcends the fun of it to be. I mean, there is a way in which it's got all these layers, it's got all this social criticism, but especially as embodied in in the Audrey Two plot, it is just a fun, over the top musical. Yeah, and you know, and I love it on that level too. And I think that even the theatrical cut has some of that. But so much of what I like about it is this. Trans- is this idea of transgression is this idea of this was not a this is not a broadway show this is mm. an off-broadway show you would never this would never be a broadway show yeah. until it was made into a movie and revived but yeah I mean, it is so obviously has more in common with like rocky horror than yes. it does with a, a disney movie even though mm. Macon and ashman went on to to do disney and I love that there is that sense of underground of transgression in this film from the start. It's about a, a guy who feeds people to a plant, you know, <laughs> and that fucking plant. There are so many just zany ideas like that that are unapologetically shoved into the, the film. And I, and I love it for that kind of underground transgressive feel which I feel is is paid off so magnificently than with the the real ending mm-hmm. as, you know, it kills the main characters and then, yeah. you know, cuts the, and everything you're seeing minute by minute is so shocking and transgressive and electrifying. So I, I like that underground feel. No, I agree. And one of the one of the scenes that sort of um, epitomizes that now for me more than than, than when i was a kid and I, I didn't really i thought it was funny when i was a kid but i watch it now and i see there's more to it is bill murray's cameo which 
you know, was completely sort of like, uh, as we've sort of said with Bill Murray, like, you know, he may or may not turn up to set someday, but this was totally like, he's not credited. He's, he just did it for a laugh. He, him coming into that dentist and, you know, he's got his own sort of wads to put in his mouth and all this other stuff, like, you know, he's, he's ready for it. And some of that scene is you've been shown there's a sadist dentist. Like he's the he's the almost like the ultimate sadist in dentist, and now you're gonna have the ultimate masochist come in and like this Max and but he says like oh yeah he says well I've got this guy and the guy that told me on Tuesday uh, recommended you uh, based on something he heard from the guy in the day the guy I see on Monday so you've got this list of dentists he sees and yeah but what's what's clearer now is I get oh like he's clearly getting off on this mm-hmm. like there's a, there's a, there's a sexual component to this and like you watch it. And Steve Martin's, you know, uh, Orange Scrivello is like trying all these different tools. And he's got the drill and all these other bits. And the frustration and sort of, again, this idea of like, you know, that he can't get the fear and, and, and the, the screams out of the Bill Murray character um, is so good. Like he it break, it almost breaks him. Like he literally gives in and throws him out. And then he's like to Rick Moranis is like, does this scare you? Does this tool scare you? And he's like, yes. He's like, good, get in here. <laughs> and, and I kind of like that again, that you've shown, because you've had the sort of like, um, you know, be a dentist song, which is wonderful. I couldn't even say what my favorite song is in this thing, but I do love that whole dentist. It's such a great sequence. So you've seen him at his sort of uh, masochistic best or sadistic sadistic best. Mm-hmm. And then to have this thing to max him out and to frustrate him and sort of like to see that he has actually got a vulnerability that, that he can be sort of beaten is again, kind of transgressive this idea that like no there aren't he's not just saying there's people out there that kind of get off on this thing it's sort of you know kind of weird to have that in the middle of the film but and we've seen that that earlier but with the i'll be a dentist song but um there i i like the idea of sublimation you know of how we find careers that allow us to do these things that otherwise would be damaging to society uh, and I often think of it for that reason, although I, I, I don't like the the Elvis riffs. I mean, there's a, a few things that I think are a little too cutesy in that song, even though <clears> I think <throat> of that song all the time. Um, but, yeah, the Bill Murray thing, I think of as, you know, yes, it, it's transgressive. It, it has this sort of S&M sexuality, which Audrey also is is required, apparently, to, to carry yeah, her own yeah. handcuffs. Yes. Um and in one of the earliest lines, you know, she's late again. And Mushnick says, you know, uh, uh, she was she explained she was tied up. Well, actually handcuffed. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the S&M is transgressive. I do think it like the Bill Murray, like everything. The Bill, oh, OK, you're you're not going to agree. And I and I don't really mean this. I like certain things that Bill Murray in, is in. But I was tempted to say everything that Bill Murray is in is terrible. Um like this does not make any sense the sequence is clearly just indulgent to have fun with a masochist dental patient and yes it underlines the sadism but we already knew that bill murray runs away and then uh we see seymour come in and um the death of the dentist Bill Murray is not required for that plot does not really elucidate anything about character now, it, it is fun seeing the masochist opposed yeah. to what, the sadist. What, what I would but. take from it, what I took from it is that, again, as a sadist, like, you know, he but he needs, um, 
he's not just in it to cause the pain. He needs it to be painful. And he knows that Audrey's not really into it. Like she's doing it to satisfy him. And so what he gets off on is actually her not 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 in the I'm trying to cause I'm trying to sort of like, you know, draw that line between consensual uh S and M and tantamount to rape is what he's doing. Like he's clearly like, you know, the, the acts he commits on Audrey aren't consent becomes would probably be a grey line in there somewhere. Um um, but like you say, he, so I like the fact that what you see with the, with the, with the Steve Martin character is like the moment someone does give consent and they're like, yeah, you go wild. You do. He's not into the actual infliction of the pain if the person's into it. Like it's got right. to be. Um, and it sort of it hammers that home a little bit. Um, but I, li- I like the fact that it frustrates him. Like he, it really throws him that like, oh, no, there's someone that, that is actually into this. Like I'm not. You know, like my sadism, you know, just to others is a, is a is a get off, and I like the fact that, that really upsets him. Yeah, I mean, I like that too, but I still think that I mean, like, part of the problem with Bill Murray is that you know he he's done a lot of this kind of thing where he's mm. a cameo or a, a bit player, and he comes in, and yes, I mean, you're right that. You know, especially during this area, there was a problem with him showing up and he was reportedly on drugs and stuff like this. But the other thing is, it's he was so he refused to really learn lines. And it wasn't like Steve Martin who would improvise like, hey, what if I, you know, twist this doll's head off? Right. Mm. Bill Murray would just not learn the lines. Just it would be totally different every every time he shot it. And that usually results in wacky sequences that really aren't very good objectively Mm. speaking and you know i like him you know like sometimes he is really into it other shots he seems like he's a little more reserved or pulled back or you know i like him being enthusiastic but none of it really makes sense in the sense that i mean why has this receptionist left left you know why you know Bill Murray's there jumping on a chair. I mean, it's it's sort of over the top. And Seymour enters with a gun. Where the mm. hell did he get this? None of this ends up being important. This is actually one of the weakest sequences or portions of the film because the gun isn't important. Bill Murray isn't important. You know, the receptionist leaving is just this, con- you know, convenience. Um, and, you know, what I like about what you're saying is, I mean, I do like what it's doing i think what i like best about it is the way that uh the dentist says uh you know get out of here you sicko <laughs> you yeah, know, once yeah. he can't achieve his sexual <laughs> mm. uh, desire so and i i love this sense of projection of like you know in the same sense like you know those 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 devious homosexuals you yeah. know they're they're terrible uh, you know they're, they're always meeting each other for yeah. delightful sex <laughs> oh it's so it's so easy to give into that but god says it's a sin yeah. you know this sort of way in which we're all kinky you the know yeah. but you know we always think somebody else's kink is the problem yeah yeah well no, you're right I, I do like that the way it ends because it, it's a transitional scene isn't it like it's got to get to that the point of the death but also with gun Ultimately, it doesn't matter. You're right. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. But 
it's also a line that is crossed. And yes, he doesn't end up using it because uh, because of the the, the silly mask, uh, the gas mask thing, which is a bit too silly. Uh, that's one of the things. In, even as a kid, I was like, "That's too, a bit too silly." However, it does show again. You, you know, would he? He does draw it on him um, and and stuff. But he went there fully intending. Like, you know, wh- where did he get it from? Well, they live on Skid Row. I'm pretty sure. You know, there'll be. Ways and means. And Go through there. any trash can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just wait long enough. There'll be some planted evidence somewhere or something you can do. Um, but the, the, you know, so I'm not sure where he gets it from. But it does show a a, a move in the, the character of, of Seymour. Like he is willing to do this. Like we've said that. Like you know, we said yeah, he doesn't have agency because everything sort of happens. Like you know, the dentist dies because of the gas in. But he's going there willing to do this. Like he is fully on board with with killing someone. He's nervous about it, and then he has no compunction about wrapping up a dead body and bringing it home on the tube on the on the, the train. Um, which again is probably you know says a lot about <laughs> Skid Row in New York in, in, in this era because no one questions what's going on. But um, although there is a conspicuous lack of observers, yes. I mean. As somebody who's had to drag dead bodies through the streets before, I can tell you it is not as easy. Yeah, we've all been there. It's it's sad. Um, Who hasn't? But um, yeah, it it shows a turn for the character for me. That that's the point. Like with Seymour, like that the the choice to take that gun shows that proactively he is willing to do this, or at least thinks he's willing to do it, or is considering it. It's a it's a move towards the dark side. The fact he I, doesn't do I, it is, is, is a, you know, where it's Well, he all. doesn't get a chance to. I mean, mm. which I, is, you know, a cop-out. But, you know, I agree with you. I agree with everything you're saying. But that would be true if we saw him going through the process of getting that gun and planning it. Which, again, yeah. like chopping up that body, when you actually see that, then Seymour is implicated. And you realize, like, oh, shit, he's going through the process of getting a gun, mm. even if Audrey's who's helping him, then we'd be like, no, you know, now he's he's more heavily implicated. Having him miraculously have a gun and nervously go to the dentist makes him seem much more innocent and it's easier for you to forget. Hold on, wait a minute. He yeah. had to track down a gun and bring it to this dentist to murder him in cold blood. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and like you say, but he does chop up, like it gets bloody. Like you see him with an axe, and and, and Mr. Mushnik sees it. Um, you know, it, it, one of the the only really gory scenes in this film. It's not hugely gory, but you see the blood sort of streaks across the floor, and you see him putting body parts into Audrey too. So, you know, he's he has dismembered a body. Like you know, didn't kill it, but he still dismembered a human body with an axe, which. Um, you know, I'm guessing isn't the easiest thing to do. It's going to be messy. It's going to be, um, yeah. you know, and he did it in the shop, which is probably the silliest thing to do. Like, you know, um, yeah. It, it, but at that point, when you watch it, this version, the, like I said, the director's cut, it shows a bit more. Like you, yes. you get the notion that yeah, there's more to this. Um, and and so that is it. He's been he's he's bought into it now. He didn't do the killing, but he's bought into this idea of fame and fortune 
you know, going to do whatever it takes to get out of Skid Row. And so this is it now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I would have more, I would have less problem with him not killing the dentist and this convenient gas overdose, which, you know, I agree is, you know, a little silly, um, a little too convenient. And it, and it's just, there are too many contrivances right at that moment. So yes. they sort of pile up and, and bother me more than something that I could sort of forgive and elide. I would, I could forgive that convenient death more if there was an escalation and with Mr. Mushnick, mm. if Seymour pushed him into the mouth. Yes. You know, just, you know, sees what Audrey 2 was doing. Audrey 2 was sort of grabbing him and the mouth is open and Seymour sees, oh, I don't have to leave forever. I could just one little push. And then, then we have an escalation from he was willing to kill, but we don't know if he would go through with it to when it was convenient for him and easy, he was willing to kill. And I would like that kind of escalation rather than, you know, letting so Audrey, yeah, he, he lets Audrey kill mm. Mr. Mushnick. And again, so like he, lets, he lets the dentist die from glass. These are sins yes. of omission versus commission. Yeah, exactly. And so they don't really want him to cross that line. I, I would be more interested if he did, especially with Mr. Mushnick. Like the dentist, like I say, I can let go. Because if anything, that would be, probably be more in, in, in keeping with the tone of this film would be, oh, so he's actually going to kill the person that took him in. You know, mm -hmm. this, this, this bully, this vile person that he's sort of seen in the street, you know, this, this secondary character sort of like, fine. Mr. Mushnick, he is willing to kill. Like, that would have been an interesting step uh, to protect, you know, like, he's, all right, well, I'm now making the choice to protect, cover up what I've done by another death, because then it becomes that spiral, doesn't it? Of like, oh, okay, now to cover up this, I've got to do this act to, and it becomes the, I say, the spiral out of control. And it, he never quite crosses that line, and it's a little bit, um, they could even there are even ways they could do it, I suppose, to make it look like we could have been debating. Did he, when he lays his hand on Mister Mushnick, was he trying to save him or was he pushing him? Like you know, they could show it in ways where you'd be like, never really sure, but you can read it in that way that he did have a hand in in Mushnick's death. Um, but yeah. It's, it's, it, Seymour, like you say, these things, like you say, but it, it, it does work because he's so passive. Um, if he was to become proactive in some of this, do, does does that change the theme? You know, you say we were saying before about the passive good guy. Mm -hmm. Does he? Because then, does he become a bad guy? Well, I think, I mean, he's a bad guy anyway, right? The, the yeah, good guy but the degrees, is. There's degrees of that, though, isn't there? But, but I think that if, like, I mean, for me, if he sort of saw the opportunity, it's set up, and his instinct is just to give Mushnick that little push, mm. that's sort of, like, exactly revealing enough to me for his character, where it's yeah. like, I'm the good guy, but when I can do this and it's easy for me and I can get away with it, my instinct is to seize that opportunity. Now, bring, killing somebody with a gun, maybe that's a little too far. Mm. But 
I think I'm a good guy, but when actually presented with an easy opportunity to get rid of a problem, I'll take it. My instinct is, yeah, push this. It's going to happen anyway. Yeah. Who's going to pull him in anyway? Yeah. No, I see what you mean, and I agree with that. I think that would be an interesting line to draw. Um, however, I don't think it would have made. I don't think it would have made the theatrical cut. <laughs> no, it was uh, definitely not. Um, uh, I I wanted to go back to the, I mean, the the dentist and, and that scene with Mushkin for a second, um, mm. because uh, well, with with Mushkin, it's interesting that Mushkin. Um, Mushnik, thank you. Uh, he uh, he is presented as a good. I mean, he's kind of mean to his employees, right? Especially mm-hmm. to Seymour. But there's this remarkable turn for me as he challenges Seymour. Like, I saw this murder. I'm going to take you into the cops, and then he sort of keeps the door from opening and says. Well, there's another option. I can buy you a ticket out of town and you can lay low for 20 years and yeah. I'll take Audrey too and I'll be rich and famous. And if anyone is a good character besides Audrey in this film, it's uh, Mr. Mushkin. And yet, Mushnik. Mushnik, thank you. And yet he, <laughs> I, I, I wrote it down wrong. Um, and yet he, um, when the opportunity presents itself, capitalism perverts him too. Mm. Well, he's he's one of those characters you've seen it take hold of him because I say the first thing or the first, when they have that first day uh, when Audrey's gone in with the black eye, like they don't have a single customer, and he says like, "That's it, we're done. I'm closing the shop," and it's all you know that sort of thing, and that's when you get introduced Audrey too. And then as it as it grows more successful, like, you know, you see him sort of like you know you see him physically change. Like he's one of the only characters that physically changes. Um, Seymour is wearing the same clothes, at, you know. Well, by the end, he's wearing a suit, but that's a little different. But he's still wearing the same sort of like you know pullover and stuff by by about the the main of um, the finale that he is at the beginning. And the same with Audrey. Like Audrey's still wearing the same clothes and still going through the same thing. It's only Mushnik that changes. Like you know, at the beginning, he's dishevelled, his hair's sort of all over, he's unshaven. And then by the when it starts to be successful, like you know, he's wearing a nice suit, he's shaven, his hair's clean, he's got his, his moustaches all sorted, and he's looking like he he is fully embracing this because this is his dream. This is what he's always wanted for this business. And so for him, like you know, like say, so yeah, you know, rich and famous, like it's fully um he doesn't want to lose this. Mm. And I can so see that, like, you know. And I, it it raises the question then, like he knows now what Audrey Two needs. So you've just said, like, oh, I'll take on the rich home. Like, he's seen what Audrey Two needs. So in him trying to send, um, instead of handing in uh, Seymour to the police and say, but instead of saying, look, if you did disappear for a time, is that so? That's implying then that Mister Mushnik is going to go. I'm happy to kill people to sustain. Audrey too, and you know, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I hadn't thought about that, but that's that's much like Seymour had to go get the gun. There are these things that aren't quite said or shown that you know, even in the case of Mushnik, um, would paint these characters in a, a worse light. Mm. 
Yeah, like he's willing to sort of take on that Faustian. He hasn't been a part of the Faustian deal, but he's more than willing to step into the role. Yeah, and, he well, wants I, it. <laughs> yeah, he said, like, well, if I can keep all, if I can get the fame and the fortune and keep all the money, then I'm more than willing to start okay. killing off dentists left, right and centre. Um, so, yeah, it, and that's another character. It's another interesting character. Like he, you know, One of the interesting things I find in this as well, though, and I think it's more... Again, I you know I can see there's, there's a logistical reason for this. Mushnik's shop stays in Skid Row, mm-hmm. and I would always think like because Audrey Two is the attractor, right? Audrey Two is is the, is the key factor in this and the success. Of, you know, the flowers become later. But I've known shops that become successful or businesses or whatever, and one of the first things they will do if they're in a bit of a crappy place in town is we've moved. To a mm-hmm. bigger unit or to a better place than the signs of the windows. And it's interesting that all they do is they just do up the shop. And I get yeah. there's a set that they've got to keep it in Skid Row because that's where the characters are and all this other stuff. But still, like there's this thing of like it's a it's a shop that gets done up, but it's still in crappy Skid Row. So Yeah, I mean I would put that in and you know, I you're right, of course. I would put that in the list of things that don't bother me, along with like a singing, dancing uh, plant, yeah, and, it doesn't, it doesn't and bother the idea me. that you can become famous through horticulture. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't so much bother me, but it's more interesting the fact that like they keep highlighting how awful this place is, mm. Skid Row. Yet all these middle class people are willing to come there yes. with money to buy flowers and reporters outside, yes. and you yeah, know, yeah. I want to know how many muggings occurred during or pickpockets, <laughs> how many pickpockets were picked during this whole section. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I, I understand why because it's got a center and a location. I know that's the point, but still, it sort of it stands out a little bit of like, oh, all these people are coming to the roughest neighborhood in New York to come and buy flowers. It's it, it feels a little sort of you know shoehorned at times, but it's fine. I understand why. Well, along with the uh, Audrey Year One uh, prequel movie that we have to make, we now have to make a like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead sort of uh, side cool to yeah. this. As the, as you know, these two pickpockets are like, this is great for us. We, we can rob all these rich people. They're coming to us for a change. Yeah, like like, like Oliver Twist, but in that Skid Row for <laughs> yeah. The other thing I was going to uh, bring up about the that Bill Murray sequence, I'm sorry to circle yeah, back to that, is, you know, another reason why I find it so incongruous and so silly and over the top is I like the I love the idea of sadism being sublimated into different occupations. And, mm. you know, not my experience, the dentists tend to, to be that way, but it's a clever song. Uh but when you actually see Bill Murray as the masochistic dental patient, it makes me think that uh, that Steve Martin is so over the top. Who is going to go to this guy? Yeah. It's one thing to be you're in the chair and there's a natural amount of pain that goes along with dentistry. And it's easy to imagine a, a dentist sneaking some of his own gas and maybe not fully numbing somebody up. I mean, it's a joke in the song and you can mm. kind of go along with it. But when you actually see Bill Murray as the patient and what Steve Martin wants to do to him, you know, these medieval tools that he has, you think, 
who the hell is bringing their kids here multiple times? Yeah. Well, you see the little girl with the with the with the like headset brace that starts to explain things to the Bill Murray character, and he's like, "Well, yes, that's that's you know that's standard procedure. Of course, that's going to happen." And so, yeah, you, I have thought that, like, you know, um, why would you go there? <laughs> like, what's this guy's reputation as a dentist? Um, yeah, I can't see that he has a, a large patient list. Um, yeah, you'd have to be a little more covert than he is. Yeah. With Bill Murray. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, like, yeah. The song opens when he pulls in and he like literally punches out his receptionist to one of his nurses as he walks yeah. into reception. <laughs> yeah. Well, and t- twists the doll's head off. <laughs> yeah. Who's coming? Who's coming back to that office? <laughs> yeah. It is good. I'm pretty sure there's like a dentist association of America that detest and hate oh. this song. Uh, oh, this yeah. whole thing. But um, I'm sure. It's uh, it's very cartoony, and that's the thing. This film is very cartoony. I mean, you know, um, just as a side note, this is one of those things. It, it is it is played for laughs. Like it's a comedy, it's a musical, and it's it's very cartoony, it's very uh, uh, exaggerated, but it's got some very very dark themes. The thing to not don't forget, this was made into a cartoon in the nineties. Was it really? They did. They turned this into a cartoon series, a Saturday morning cartoon series, Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. Which is another one of those things where you sort of go, someone in, a, in an office somewhere went, you know that thing, you know that, that that IP we've got about a, a plant that kills people and eats them uh, to take over the world? Kids love that. Well, <laughs> we'll put it on. We'll put it next to the Rambo RoboCop and Beetlejuice cartoon. Yeah, and I love I love that tradition of that eighties thing and early it really ends the sort of like the first few years of the mm. 90s of r-rated stuff and inappropriate kids because yeah. you know look i mean you know i watched akira i wanted mm. adult content right in cartoons and now we have it kind of but no that's awesome uh but but it, what it suggests to me is i i kind of have a dim memory whether i'm inventing it or not um of that cartoon audrey 2 and what it what it, it reminds me of is exactly your point about how Audrey 2 is because of that voice. Audrey 2 is charming and sort of iconic. Yeah. And you can almost forget that this is a horrible story about horrible yeah. people <laughs> doing horrible things. Well, I think that's it because it's, it's presented in such a cartoonish way. Um, and again, I, you know, this is one of those things that like Tim Burton can do well. Like I watch Edward Scissorhands in a similar way. Like you watch Edward Scissorhands, and it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful film. Like, and then you dig into you. Actually, this film's really like, you know, about the sort of stuff in that film is really dark and really like heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it happens in this film. But the other thing I want to point out, you say about the, the cartoonishness of this, and I think it helps because you this film could uh, God knows what there is. There is a remake in the in the offing, and it's got like Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans and and Taron Egerton in and all this other stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like, looking at that cast, looking at that cast is where you go. You you don't understand what this film was, do you? Like you don't get it. Um, but the um the the, the point is um. The um, Audrey 2 being a puppet. And I wanted to, to, to touch on Audrey 2 as, as the, the puppetry behind it. 
it's a it is a musical it's all, it's all same but if you tried to play this too straight like or because Audrey 2 has to be a puppet like it wouldn't work you need that comedy and that cartoonishness to be able to buy into that suspension of disbelief has to be consistent across the board if you not just to buy into a talking plant but into the way it works and that sort of thing but the thing I want to sort of really throw massive props to is the design of Audrey 2 from the first um bud let's just call it that which again the the, the in the in the um director's cut when you see the second bud like the, later on when the guy finds him on the roof and the little one f- smiles at, at uh, Seymour yeah. when they're telling the plan pitch perfect absolutely fantastic but also the design of sort of like so the growing audio when they go to the radio station and when it opens its mouth and the tongue comes out but the tongue is surrounded by leaf and foliage and stuff inside the detail is absolutely phenomenal all the way through to fully grown Audrey 2 and the way the lips move and the inside of the mouth. Cause they know that like, th- this is one of those films where when I got this on Blu-ray, like I probably hadn't seen it for a few years. I thought I've got this on Blu-ray. It's going to be in high def. It's probably going to look a bit cack. You know, like you're going to see the seams. You're going to look at Audrey 2 and it's going to look like it's made of, um, latex or whatever and there's parts i'm like no i completely buy into this plant like i'm watching it as a character and i think it's a real testament to the model making and the puppetry of this is absolutely phenomenal which obviously comes from frank Hawes and they used um jim henson studios but i don't know it's just for me i'm always impressed by practical effects it's just some of the best practical effects of the 80s in this film well, and you and you combine that with the models at the end of the five million dollar jettisoned, you know, yeah. climax. Uh, it really and apparently the people who worked on that that climax worked on it for a full year or something, and oh, then got a pissed. phone call like, "Yeah, you know that thing you just devoted your life to. You got paid, but we're not going to use any of it." It's the um, fact that uh, to just say I lo- the fact that like you say, and this is a thing of the station, it got dug out. Like that was almost lost as well. Mm-hmm. Like that was found and brought back. Like the studio was not only willing to throw it away, it was willing to forget about it. And I find that baffling. Well, apparently it, there was it this was the first uh DVD recall, supposedly, in history, because they mm. put out a DVD that had uh, or, you know, the Geffen did or whatever, the studio that had black and white footage of the ending, because that's all the studio had. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, bad sound and, and, you know, black and white and terrible. And I think it was Geffen who said, oh, I've got a copy of, first of all, don't put that out. It's horrible. And, and they had to destroy all those DVDs. Yeah. Uh, but then I think Geffen had a copy of it and was like, oh, I've got a color copy, you know, like, yeah. and then they wound up putting together this thing that Frank Oz approved mm. as the director's cut. Um, but, you know, I mean, apparently there were like uh, six different sizes of Audrey too. Mm. And it was like 60 or 90 different puppeteers manipulating the full size one. How does that even work? That's got to be coordination in that. Yeah. Yeah, like just, it, I mean, imagine like how far off the set yeah. those 60 people are standing all pulling little things. Well, it, it's, it's, it, there are scenes in this film, in both versions, where uh, Audrey 2 isn't just, not, they're not just talking to a plant. Like there's, there's things where it's just up, you know, but like it sings 
and it's it's it sings i believe it's a plant that's singing like you know you take it because the lips are moving and but not even the big things not even just you know the big uh overacting that you know you can get from a puppet like even some of the expression like when he knows um he has manipulated um uh seymour and you get this sort of like a (laughs) and it's sort of like smirks and stuff like the little things it's so it's so well thought out as a, as a puppet like i said i don't know how many people are working on this thing like I say it sounds like tens of people pulling the strings on this thing oh, yeah. and and um and then to act with it and to do everything with it and to coordinate it with the singing and, and the lighting and everything like you know, you know it's it's but just the look of it like you know i know this is based on a 1962 um roger Corman. i've never seen the original um, I, you know, I, I don't think I want to. I don't. It'd be that sort of thing. Of maybe one day I'll try it out. But the, the the puppetry and the special effects artistry that's used in the design is um, I, I can't praise it enough. You know, it's one of those sort of like physical things. It's just so so impressive. No, I agree with you, and I, I think that you know, a couple of things that stand out for me that I really appreciate about the design, especially the big Audrey too, is that I, I sort of feel like the inside of the mouth is a little too blue. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, especially when you get up to the big size, um, it does look more plasticky. And inside the mouth, I like the leaves, but the the colors feel a little day glow or off to me. But there are sort of um, I you know how to describe it, sort of like fleshy bits at the back of the throat. Yes, uh, that uh, it's such a wonderful th- that look like an animal. You yeah, know, imperfect bits at the back of the, that really sell you on like, no, this isn't just a made up mouth with some leaves for contouring. Like this is some horrible alien thing. Um, and the other thing is, even though it does look more plasticky in the bigger model, the sort of like indentions around the lips that mm. just look like, yeah, I can buy that. Um, that looks really good. I will say that it is clear that the voice of Audrey, too. As, mu- as celebrated is, is uh, a black individual, okay, yes. African American. Am I wrong in pointing out that Audrey too has super big lips? Is that racist? It's you know what you're not. Yeah, it crossed my mind. Um, uh, I don't know <laughs> because again, you could say because don't forget when the when it's the lips are together. It forms a bud, so so you get that design. So it, it works in that sense as well that you get that sort of like the literal the lips forming the budding. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm just putting that out there so it's yeah. documented. We've mentioned it. We both thought about it. You know, we're not probably the best people to comment on that. The most qualified no. people. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was also reading about the, the puppetry and uh, apparently they were really studying. They were really struggling. Frank Oz was to get it looking right. Mm. And eventually what they realized was that the puppetry was so intricate that what they had to do was film it at like 12 frames a second or something and then speed it up. So everything is in slow mo. So when they have characters, when Rick Moranis is interacting with Audrey, he speaks 
talking like this. And they would have to mouth in slow motion their lines to then lip sync it later. Wow. So everybody is sort of doing a Doctor Who kind of like slow yeah. motion. <laughs> you know. That's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's, it's just one of those I said. I, I would love to see, um, you know, I'm sure that is the big book of like how this was done i think it's, it's so clever i'm always impressed by puppetry like so that i'm not one of these that thinks like you know are oh, down with cgi it looks awful doesn't it? no 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 cgi is great it's given us some fantastic things but i'm also in the day like when cgi wasn't available and they do something like this like it just deserves a round of applause it's the same with like you know the silly things like star wars or the model work on those things or um even like Batman eighty nine, you know, when you see the models of of uh, the the gothic, but you know, Gotham yeah. City, and you see the matte paintings that go into this type of stuff, I'm always impressed with these practical effects. I think they they are so impressive, and and, and this is just another one to add to that list. Yeah, and they but, look yeah. cool, and mm. and they do sell the reality. I mean, I mean, you and I are both fans of the same stuff. Of you know, I I love a good matte painting. I mean, mm-hmm. a good matte painting looks so much better than. Not that again, I'm not against CGI, but I think your point is very well made that not only if they remade this, um, the temp- would the actors be a problem because actors like to portray good guys, most of them. And, you know, Chris Evans is the absolute wrong person for any role in this. You know, he, about he, he, character. According to what I just read, he uh, it was Scarlett, Jan- Scarlett Johansson as, as Audrey. Chris Evans as the dentist and Taron Egerton as, as Seymour Crowell. So. Well, you know, we'll see whether anything really happens. But yeah. I share a similar suspicion that a CG Audrey 2 either winds up looking too realistic and it loses mm. that cartoony, transgressive, underground, you know, edge that I love so much about this movie, or it, um, or it looks too cartoony and you think, yeah, doesn't fit. Yeah. Why am I in Space Jam? You know. Yeah, yeah. The, the uncanny valley sort of effect of like it doesn't quite fit in with the background or within the, within the world. Yeah, I. You know, I'm again. I'm. I'm. I'm never against a remake. Um, you know, if I was, well, ridiculously, wouldn't have things like the thing or the fly. You know, this this. So this is a remake. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. This is a remake. So we're literally talking about a remake. So. A musical that was remaking a Roger Corman movie, for God's yes. sake. And that musical was then remade as a movie. Yeah. So I've, I've got no problem with that. So, you know, if they want to do it, fine. It may be good, maybe bad. I'm not going to until I ever see anything. But um, what was it? Let, let's sort of just round out then. So final thoughts then on, on Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. I love that transgressive underground flair to it. And, and that this was a major release, something we saw as kids that, you know, has that feel to it. Ultimately, I am amazed by how in retrospect, I mean, I like this as a kid. I like the music more than I liked the actual movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having seen and thank you for enlightening me, having seen the actual film, the director's cut, I feel as if the original is sort of like a B minus range. Mm. The music is good. Not, there are songs that are better than others. Um, you know, the music is catchy. Some of it is really famous, deservedly so. Mm-hmm. But 
the but the movie has a lot of, of problems and is ultimately a sort of slightly above average, you know, musical with some really interesting stuff and some major flaws. I feel as if the director's cut is just undoubtedly in the A range and yeah. the level of just delight that I have watching this is hard to describe. I just love the movie. I have rediscovered more love than I ever had for this film as a result of discovering that director's cut. So thank you for pointing me in that direction. No, well, thank God, thank God that they released it. I mean, I've, you know, I've got the sort of, uh, they released the director's cut, um, you know, it comes with a commentary and stuff and that. So I, I for the alternative, and I, I haven't listened to all that yet, but it, it's one of those films, as you say, like I watched this as a kid and even the theatrical version, there are moments in this where I'm like, Man, we watched some stuff in the eighties when I was like, you know, stuff got past things in the eighties like you wouldn't get away with now. And I know that's a sort of a cliche to say that, but it's so true. Like this film starts with a woman suffering from domestic violence and then turns it into a single song number. And I'd have been, you know, I'd have been sort of as a kid like, yeah, downtown. Da, 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 da. <laughs> like it's it's crazy that no one, like, my parents clearly weren't paying attention. But Frank Oz. Yeah, got this past the people, and and like you say, for years to me, this was a this was a, a this is a sort of a, a happy, upbeat, redemptive musical for years, and I, it was it was it was something as you said, I loved the probably loved the music more than the film, um, you know, and, and sort of like Mean Green Mother, um, and sort of Don't Feed the Plants and all the songs I really love. And then when I saw heard about the alternative, and I saw like you saw, I saw it on YouTube, and I was like, "Oh, this is amazing! Why did this not was this not put in?" And then it was released, and I see the director's intent, and you see what Frank Oz was doing, and you can see why Disney don't want to work with him or are scared of working with him these days, because he probably doesn't care and wants to make something similar to this. But it, it's clear that he was like, "No, I have a vision." I'm going to sort of like, you know, I'm going to sort of poke fun at those 50s monster films and all these other bits and pieces. And I'm going to satirize sort of like, you know, 80s America and all these other things. And I'm going to have this ending. I mean, it's going to be amazing. And it's going to, we're going to go full bore on it. And it's going to be, you know, and it is, as you say, wonderful. The, the, direct, the director's cut of this film is a different cinematic experience to the theatrical. Version. But, you know, this isn't just one of those things where they say, Oh, the director's cut. You know, we've added in an extra few minutes. No, this is a completely different film. the The themes and the, the intent is completely different, and it's. I'm so so glad that they they gave us this this version. Um, it's brilliant. It's absolutely phenomenal. The, the ending of this film is is you know the film's great. I actually like a lot about this film. There are it still has problems as we've pointed out. It's got no no film is perfect, but that whole the whole sequence at the end and the fact of the matter is like i love the fact that although um the alternative version was only ever released on uh blu-ray you know this full package the director's cut the film ends and i'd love to see this in the cinema because the film ends with an auditor bursting through a cinema screen like it's supposed to give you that that moment and stuff and like you know so even stuff like that like clever little ideas throughout this film are so 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 good and it's well done so it's well worth revisiting so what i will say is and i will put this out before this you'll probably see me tweet about it so before this film goes out uh sorry before this this show goes out i'll be tweeting about it i want people to hunt down and watch uh the theatrical version fine 
but go and try and at least find the alternative ending on YouTube um, or watch the director's cut will be my recommendation because it's such a good film. Absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad we watched this. But yeah, I'm in, no, brother. It's, 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 yeah, a good, it was a, it's, it's been a doozy. This is a really good film. Um, but the fun doesn't stop there because I'm going to check. I often have a list of what we're going to have. Um, and I need to check what is next. We are still in the. Tell you. Uh, Demolition Man Ooh, from 1993. It is. It is. So we've gone from a film that you were delighted I introduced, <laughs> I made you watch, to one that I'm still not entirely sure how it will go down. But I, I, so I, um, I think we agreed on Little Shop of Horrors. I think that was a mutual because yes, I had genius. you had clued me into the ending, and yes. then I would talk to you uh, the next week and was like, "Oh my god, man, I love this! I've watched <laughs> that alternate ending like 20 times. I love it so much." Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, we'll see whether um, Demolition Man is a man with uh, man who fell to earth, as in something you made me watch that I <laughs> will bow down and thank you yeah. for, or more a Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen, I have honestly, I mean, I have seen most of it, uh, but mostly on, on TV when I'm not paying attention. Yeah. It's an interesting film. I, I have recently done, and I'll, I'll wrap up, I recently did a sort of a mini retrospective uh, with um, on 20th Century Geek. Uh, we called it Standalone Stallone. And it was basically sort of looking at a lot of the four of his own sort of standalone movies. And one of the things I sort of find with, with Stallone is like he makes good choices. Like there aren't many Stallone films where you go, that's a real, like there was a period from like 1990 to 93 where he made a couple of stinkers and Demolition Man got him out of it. Cliffhanger and Demolition Man in 1993 got him out of a rut and really established him again as a 90s uh, action star. And so it's interesting to see like you know why he came back to the, this genre and um I, I think there's something to say about Demolition Man. It's got some interesting concepts in. Um and and in in in, in I'll put it in the vertical words, Interesting performances. Um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, the standalone Stallone, I mean, and, and talking about the redemption of uh, Stallone, did you tackle by any chance Stop or My Mom Will Shoot? No, that was in his bad choices. That was, yeah, we tackled Nighthawks, Cobra, uh, Cliffhanger, and Daylight. But between, like, there's a, there's a run. Like, if you look, there's, like, Oscar, uh, Stop and My Mom Will Shoot, and something else, I can't remember what it was. They were like all flops. Um, For good reason. Yes. And then he, he came back with Cliffhanger and, and Demolition Man. Okay. Um, but we will address Stallone and um, the rest of the cast in, in the next episode. But. So, so for those of you listening, don't forget about the, our sister podcast, 20th mm-hmm. Century Geek. Um, Scott, I have to admit, you are good even when I'm not on. I mean, I, it's hard for me to say that. It pains my heart. Uh, so I would recommend everyone check that out, subscribe, um, you know, review and rate both of these podcasts. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, we're on Twitter at Pod Time Space, And we're also on Patreon. If you look up 20th, I think it's 20th. It's, it's a, a patreon.com slash 20 CG media. Is, is now what we're under. 
Uh, yeah, and one of the key things that Julian and I, if you do love what Julian and I are doing, we do a weekly uh, sort of like dip into, we call it Trekking Through the Twilight Zone, and we are going through all the Twilight Zone episodes and giving our thoughts on each of those, and that's been a fascinating um, doozy. We, I don't know if I'll read actually when this comes out, but we actually did a double header uh, is coming up um, uh, about, I was going to say the people of Bourbon Street, then what's it called? The, the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. The Monsters of Dune Maple Street. It was a fantastic guest. So that was a good double header of both the original and the remake from 2003. Um, so go check that out. There's a whole other bunch of stuff on there, uh, behind the scenes stuff, and all the bits and pieces of podcast. But it's, it's, a, it's a great page when it keeps the eye, uh, keeps the lights on, really, at 20th Century Media Towers. Um, so <laughs> it, it's, that's located right between the uh, Avengers Tower and the LexCorp Tower, I think. Yeah, at the moment I'm stealing both their sort of um, Wi-Fi and electricity. Um, we need more patrons. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, uh, but ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. I hope you're enjoying it. And the big thing as well, if you do enjoy it, just go and, like as Julian said, go and leave us a review and get in contact. We're happy to talk about any of these films. We really enjoy it. But for now, thank you very much, and uh, we shall see you in the future. streams.